The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Where is home for you? Seems like a simple question. Well, if you're listening, and you're probably in Aotearoa, New Zealand. This is your home. But that's not the case for everyone and not all the time. And certainly wasn't for me. As a youngster, I suppose, just out of university and with my first job and all very exciting and getting some skills and seeing some great opportunities overseas, after my first job in Wellington with Reuters, I jumped onto the international corporate bandwagon and went and worked for Reuters in Canberra and in Sydney as an economic and political and financial journalist. It was all very exciting and interesting. And along the way, um, I had a couple of wonderful daughters. And at various points in my corporate journey, I had to make a decision about where was home and what was it I really wanted. Because yes, you can do the numbers about how much money you're making, and you can do the calculations about what it means for your career and where you're living and is it a safe place and are the schools good and all of that sort of boring middle class stuff. But often it comes back to something different, something emotional, something about family and about place, about where you want to really live, who your friends are, who you want to watch the rugby with. You know, where are you going to be for Christmas? Where are the places and the things that you do with your friends and your family that really mean something to you? And often, it's not necessarily where the job is or where the money is. But in New Zealand, we are uniquely in a conflicted position about this because so many of us leave New Zealand once we have some skills to work overseas. Now, the dream is, and often the assumption when we leave is, oh, we'll come back. It's just two or three years. We might build up a deposit, we'll get some extra skills, we get a great looking CV and come back and conquer, the, conquer New Zealand and maybe have a deposit for a house. Brilliant. But of course, it's not like that. In fact, New Zealand has one of the highest proportion of its New Zealand-born population living overseas. Just behind Portugal, and in more recent years, Lithuania. <laughs> Ukraine actually is quite high on the list. And of course, back in the 90s, it was Ireland. And New Zealand was right up there then. That's because we're in a slightly unusual situation. Right next to us is Australia. And of course, in the last 30 years, wages there have been 30 to 40% higher than here. And we had pretty easy work rights, at least until the last 20 years. We basically could jump on a plane and just start work. And we'd pay our taxes and we get access to all the schools and all of that sort of thing. However, of course, since 2001, that's changed a bit. And also, in recent years, some of the cost of living problems of living in Australia have ironed out because the Australians have actually been quite good at building apartments in Sydney and Melbourne. So we're in a position after COVID where a whole bunch of young people locked up for two years are going, hey, I'm heading off over overseas. And that's fine. But will they come back? And what sort of society are we building where a good chunk of our young skilled people wash out and maybe don't wash back in again? And how do we replace them? 
Do we have a whole new group of people wash in to replace the people washing out? And what happens when those numbers don't add up? When we've got a lot more people coming in than we're leaving, or the other way around. And that's what we're talking about this week on When the Facts Change. How are we going to pull our migration lever, and should it be the only lever that we pull, in response to what I call a polycrisis that we're in at the moment? Just in the last couple of weeks, I'm sure you've all heard about the stories about emergency departments full up, hospitals that have called off elective surgeries, schools sending kids home at lunchtime, kids watching movies all day at school, Air New Zealand cancelling dozens of flights at the beginning of the school holidays, all because of staff shortages. When you have unemployment at 3.2% and you've got a whole crop of youngsters going, yay, I'm off. It's a problem for a whole bunch of employers. And right now, they are desperate. We've heard from the Employers and Manufacturers Association this week that New Zealand should very fast and aggressively pull the migration lever, lower the standards for temporary work visas to come in, remove the current restrictions, which say that the only people who come in should be paid $27 an hour or more. And also, just to just to pull the migration lever to get people in the door so that we can deliver services right now and also take some of the pressure off prices. Because as well as the labour shortages, we have an inflation problem. And of course, it is not just an economic problem, it's a political problem or an opportunity if you're in the opposition. Because we've heard Christopher Luxon and many others say, one of the solutions to our inflation problem is migration that we can take some of the pressure off wages, we can take some of the pressure off the economy and society by having lots of excellent people coming in with those skills who want to live here. And we should offer them residency instead of just having them here rolling on temporary work visas every three years or so. And of course, we've got so many New Zealanders now who have come to New Zealand through that route as temporary work visa holders who have eventually gotten residence many of whom, of course, in fact, over 200,000 of whom, are likely to get the special residency work visas because they were here and worked through COVID, and justifiably so. But in the last couple of years, it's become more obvious, and certainly from the government's point of view, that just pulling the migration lever might not be the right thing to do. In fact, the government's been trying to hold the migration lever steady, in fact, push it back a little bit, by doing what it calls a migration reset or rebalance is the latest phrase they've used. The idea here is that you effectively lift the threshold for the skill level of workers coming in. You force employers to become accredited importers of labour, if you like, to make sure that they're nice to their workers. And you ensure that when they come in, they get paid a really high wage. In fact, a lot of these Uh, employers are being forced to pay $27 an hour for these workers coming in. There are a few exceptions, and of course, many of the employers are asking for those exceptions to be extended. I can feel it in the air that politically and economically, we are headed towards pulling that lever. Christopher Luxon said this week, uh, as he came back from overseas, that New Zealand needed to be more positive, more outward-looking, more open, and the way to do this was to pull the migration lever. It was, he said, time to be pro-migration. 
Now, he did acknowledge in his comments that we needed to do a bit more than that, not just pull the migration lever, but make sure that we had some of the infrastructure here and that we helped a lot of New Zealanders who maybe have struggled to get the skills or are in situations where, you know, they can't move with their job so that those people have plenty of jobs as well. At the moment, the pressure is not quite so great with unemployment at 3.2%. Uh, There is less talk about trying to make sure that New Zealanders have opportunities for jobs. But to be fair to Christopher Luxon, he is saying we need to think about that as well. This week, I talked to the Productivity Commission Chair, Ganesh Nana, about whether we should pull that lever. And if we do, what other levers should we pull? Should we pull the infrastructure lever? Should we pull the tax lever? Should we think about how we plan our population growth, which on the face of it sounds like an ugly thing to do. It's the sort of thing the Chinese Communist Party does plan as population growth. But of course, what we're talking about here is avoiding what we had really in the three years up to COVID, which was very, very fast population growth, the fastest population growth in the developed world, enormous problems with congestion, and of course, house prices. You can never go too far in the debate about New Zealand's economy and society, well, at least I can't, without talking about house prices. And this is the sort of dirty little secret of this debate, because there is a fear here that if we pull the migration lever, just as interest rates stop rising, in fact, they might even be falling by next year, And as the opposition is saying, they reverse the changes on tax deductions for landlords and reverse the changes on Brightline. What you could see is a surge of migration coming in, which keeps a bit of downward pressure on wages and wage inflation, inflation generally, which allows the Reserve Bank to stop increasing interest rates and start cutting them. At the same time as not spending any money on infrastructure, because you're concerned about increasing debts and deficits, we go straight back to 2018-2019, when strong population growth, falling interest rates, and plenty of employment around meant we had a very fertile place for another explosion in house prices. Now you say, well, that's a bad thing. There's actually a lot of people who think, oh, that's quite a good thing, actually, because I'm leveraged up and it's a tax-free capital gain. And I'm not making much money from my actual job because we're a low-wage economy, but with high house prices, but I am making a gain from my house price. And really, that's the main point, which, of course, is a problem because that's the economy we've built over the last 10 to 20 years, a low-wage, low-productivity growth, high-population growth, high-house price low infrastructure, low tax economy. Now that's fine if you have assets because then an explosion in asset prices delivers straight to your bottom line a massive leveraged tax-free capital gain and suddenly you're richer. And maybe you think you need those riches because how else are you going to get your kids into a house? How else are you going to stop your kids from leaving? How are you going to see your grandkids grow up? if you don't have all that equity to buy a house for them or help them buy into a house. Now, this, of course, ignores the very real issue of those people whose parents don't own a home, who don't have the leveraged tax-free equity built up to help them get into into an actual life. Because, of course, in New Zealand, really what we're talking about is how to have a life, how to connect to a place. It's really hard when you're renting because you keep getting booted out by some landlord who's just flicked it on. 
You can't get connected to a school. You can't get connected to a community. You can't be close to your parents and your grandparents and your cousins and your, the, the club and the, the hobby and all those people that makes a life a rich place. That's the problem in New Zealand. And this issue of migration is not just a one-way thing. It's a two-way thing. I talked at the beginning of um, what we call the monopoly, <laughs> the spin-off. I talked about a place to live and how migration is more than just a story about the economy and about wages and a clean calculation about living costs versus incomes and entitlements and residency times. It's about your place. It's about where you feel like it's your home. And in this discussion I have with Ganesh Nana, we talk about that, that migration isn't just an economic issue. He outlines how actually migration hasn't necessarily depressed wages in New Zealand. It also hasn't necessarily increased productivity. So when you hear a politician say to you, this is going to be fantastic for inflation and for productivity, they're not in tune with the actual evidence in New Zealand. What Ganesh Nana is actually saying is that migration isn't a solution for any particular ills. It's also not the evil that some have painted it as. And you can achieve some good things, but only if you do it at the same time as you pull the infrastructure lever and make sure that there is plenty of capacity for people who come. Because unlike, as Kevin Costner, that great philosopher, said, build it and they will come, in New Zealand over the last decade, they came. And then we thought, oh, should we build it? Oh, yeah, nah. Look at the house price, it just went up. And that's a problem. Because the more we do that, the more people who are renting here, who grew up here, and this is their place and they want to make it their place, actually don't have a choice. They're just going to have to jump on a plane to Australia or whatever to try desperately to get a deposit. And the interesting news over the last couple of weeks that adds to this poly crisis is that, rightly, the Prime Minister has negotiated with his new Australian Labor Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, a faster pathway to residency and citizenship for New Zealanders living in Australia. That's a good thing. No one should complain about that. However, it does mean that our employers are now having to compete on a much more level playing field, particularly for those more experienced, more connected, mid-career people, people in their 30s and 40s who maybe already have the kids and maybe are renting and their kids are at school and they're struggling and they can't get a permanence and a connection to this place. And in desperation, they go, right, we can't do this anymore. We're going overseas and we'll probably stay in Australia or the rest of the world. And that's the choice we're going to face in the next year or two. Do we pull one lever just the migration lever to ensure we get that GDP, that short-term GDP hit that also, by the way, helps return budgets to surplus pretty quick and maybe keep some downward pressure on wages, although it's not clear from the evidence that's the case. But the main thing is we get that housing market going back up again, getting that leveraged tax-free capital gain going back up again. But is that the place we want? Do we want to live in a place where so many people wash out and never come back in? We love the people who wash in, many of whom make New Zealand their home. Although, interestingly, another aspect of that change in Australian policy is that it will be much easier for people who become residents here, maybe they've come from India or the Philippines or South Africa or Europe or the States, and then once they're New Zealand residents, bang, across the Tasman they go. And that's one of the concerns the Australians actually have about making it easier for New Zealanders to become full citizens. 
because they fear New Zealand will become this big, wide-open door to the big brown land, lucky country. I'm Bernard Hickey. That's this week on When the Facts Change. Migration, which levers should we pull? And what sort of place do we want to build? And for who? Welcome again, Ganesh Nana, to When the Facts Change. Great to see you here in our very professional, improvised front seat of a car studio here for, on the spin-off. That's all good. Kia ora. And as the chair of the Productivity Commission, you've just finished a really big, chunky exercise in looking at how migration has affected productivity in New Zealand and whether it could be used as a tool to improve productivity. So let's just sort of uh, look at the various myths or views that are out there and just present the evidence that you discovered in your many month long process of research, um, did a whole bunch of academic papers and took submissions from all and sundry. To start with, does migration press wages down? Short answer to that is no. Um, We've got to look at migration in the context of, of a whole range of things. But uh, if you're looking for, uh, for example, a scapegoat for wages, um, migration is not it. If you're looking for a scapegoat for productivity, migration is not it. But put it back the other way, if you're looking for migration to actually lift our productivity, again, it's not it. There, there, there's a whole lot of nuances, there's a whole lot of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Migration is one piece of that jigsaw puzzle, but we've got to get a whole lot of other pieces right. Um, yes, migration is good for wages and productivity in some areas, but not so in others. And and I think the, the, the problem we have is the average hides a lot, just like any average. Statistically, the average in terms of migration on productivity and on wages is, is positive. It's a small positive, but statistically, as you all know, averages hide a lot. And it's the distribution across uh, the various areas um, that we need to be aware of. So just to drill down on that a bit, because we've had different types of migration over the years, different people doing different things for different lengths of time. And it's changed quite a bit, especially in the last 10 years or so, where we had this historic surge in the number of people who were on temporary work visas. And towards the end of the last decade or so, the skill levels of those visas dropped a bit. What did you find, if you could find any um, evidence, because it wasn't in a particularly long time, and also it happened at the same time as a, as a, a boom in demand for labour, so that made it difficult to work out what effects it was having. But what did that you know, change in the makeup of the migration, what effect did that have on things like productivity and wages? Well, again, it was marginal, but I think it's useful to go back through the history and, and recognise that migration has had a, a significant role to play in the development of the economy, uh, in the development of our communities in Aotearoa. And um, I, I suppose the principal role has very much been in the in the context of replacing the New Zealanders who go abroad. And, and, and we hear a lot recently about the brain drain, but we've got to be realistic that New Zealanders have always gone abroad and will continue to do so. And, and there's no reason we should stop that or even attempt to stop that. Um, migration has been used, dare I say, to, for example, to fill the gap of that brain drain. But more importantly, migration 
across our history has actually added to New Zealand. So it's done more than replace the brain drain. It actually has added to us. And and that's up until quite recently has been a positive. Um, but as you say, the the last sort of maybe seven, eight years pre-COVID, we've had this, this significant shift to temporary um, visa categories. And what that has done is it's it's built up the um, the 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 queue for permanent migration or permanent uh, or uh, people coming in and going into the permanent residence queue, and what that disconnect has has um, I suppose enc- uh, not encouraged but set in train is that that population growth that has been disconnected to those other things that we need, like, you know, migrants are not just workers. They they come with families, um, and families need, uh, dare I say it, that infrastructure around it, not just the physical infrastructure, not just the houses and the roads and the transport and all of that, but also the community infrastructure, the services, the the facilities, the, the education services, the health services, all of those things... Um, the demand for those got pent up with the, that temporary migration surge building into population growth. And effectively, we got out of balance in terms of what we had available, what the Productivity Commission calls the, our absorptive capacity. Um, and and it's not just physical infrastructure, and it's definitely not just houses, it's more than that. And so the migration History has been good in terms of employment and in terms of productivity and in terms of wages, but it's that, I suppose, the disconnect between that and what we need in terms of services and infrastructure that would enable migration uh, to make the, the, the significant positives that we're all after. So there's that great philosopher, Kevin Costner, from Field of Dreams, who who came up with his line, build it and they will come. But in New Zealand, we seem to say, come on in, they came, but then we didn't build it. And and there's also this idea that um, we couldn't build it and then invite people in because they're the ones who do the building. (laughs) Again, it, it, and, and, and we can argue about whether what comes first, but it's the, I, I, I suppose, let's do this with open eyes. If we're looking to the future, uh, yes, migrants have got a role to play. Let's make that clear and transparent. Let's not use migrants as a scapegoat, um, but then let's not also expect them, expect them to lift us out of the, the productivity challenges or the wage challenges that we've got. They are a piece of the puzzle. Um, we've got to make sure the other pieces of the puzzle are there as well. And that's the infrastructure and, you know, the Infrastructure Commission have got a a lot to say about that and good on them. But it's more than just the physical infrastructure. It's our community infrastructure. It's our services, the facilities. And I worry that if we continue to get those two, you know, the migration inflows and those other elements too much out of kilter, we lose that social licence for migration. Uh, and and, and uh, once we lose that, it's very hard to get back. So let's ensure that, build it and they will come, but even the other way around, but make sure that the planning and the alignment of all of those different arms of those policy decisions 
let's get that alignment right. And that's why we call for what, what we call, and it sounds bureaucratic, but a government policy statement that brings in all of those pieces. So immigration is no longer a decision that's seen as isolated or disconnected from all those other arms of government. So what sort of things would you include in a government policy statement um, that would go out to all the government departments and that would be agreed on by a government and you'd hope for several terms? Well, it, the, the, the key thing is to make these transparent so we don't have the, for example, the experience of the last few years where we had the big surge in temporary migrants and we were, I, I, I won't say we were unaware, but it wasn't um, clear what the residence pathway was for those temporary migrants. And if it was, you know, if, they, if we want to go down that route, that's fine, but let's make it clear that some of those temporaries are going to transfer into permanent residence. Some of them may not. That's fine. But how, how does that temporary search translate into the, 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 the planning range for permanent residence? And, and that's a technical term, but, um, and, and so we're clear about how much is going to be in terms of permanence. We're clear about what that means for population over the next, you know, two, five, 10, 20 years. That's the sort of horizon because they, they have families and that has consequences as well. Uh, what does it mean for health and education? What does it mean for workforce development, workforce training? Um, what does it mean for physical infrastructure, whether it be transport, whether it be housing, whether it be local government services? All of those pieces of the puzzle need to come together. Um, and I suppose underpinning it all in terms of a, a GPS or a statement is what is the objective of migration? You know, is it purely and simply to fill the holes for that in, in terms of our workforce requirements, or is it more than that? Is it we want to, for example, we want to attract the best and brightest, or at least some of them. We want to attract the, the ones with entrepreneurial spirit. We want to attract the nurses, for example. Let's make whatever decisions we make around those questions, let's make it transparent so then all the other decision makers, whether government and indeed private sector, businesses and communities are aware of those objectives and goals and we can make our decisions consistent with those. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They, they've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, then it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market. 
the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Because at the moment we've, we're having a debate again about migration because of the intense pressure on workforces, shortages all across the economy, some of which are short-term because there are people at home sick with COVID, but others are longer-term where um, for various ageing population reasons or because a whole bunch of people have, after two years in lockdown have gone, to, gone and had their OE, there's an intense short-term set of demands from people in business. So we had the ANZ CEO come out last week and say, you know, we need the migrants now. We don't have the time to train up locals. We've had the Employment and Manufacturers Association come out this week and say, please open up the tap for migrants. Our employers are saying they can't find locals. And when the locals do come, they don't seem to want to work or they've got various other problems that don't turn up to work on time. We just need to, we just need the migrants. What do you, how do you fit in what you found in the re- report into, pro- into productivity and migration? What, what, what sort of learnings from that can you uh, pass on to those people saying, right, we just need the migration now. That's the solution to our problems right now. Well, I, I suppose, and, and maybe I'm showing my age a little bit, but some of those comments you just went through, I've heard them many, many times. And, and unfortunately, and this is not a critique of any of the people who've made those comments, uh, unfortunately, this idea that we can't do the training or we can't do the training now, we'll do it tomorrow. My worry is we've always said we've do these things tomorrow. And similarly with infrastructure, we've always said we'll do it tomorrow. We can't do it. Today. There's always something that puts those off. And so one of the... Uh, objectives, I dare I say, of the GPS is to let's balance those short-term, long-term tensions a bit and let's make them transparent. So yes, okay, short-term considerations, we need workers. We need with whatever they may be, whether they're nurses or whether they're IT professionals. Okay, let's go down that route, but let's also put beside it, what are we going to do now about the long term? What are we going to do now about the training New Zealanders, about the workforce development programs, whether they be in the ITs or in the health sector or whether they be in the construction sector? Uh, It's not an either or. We've got to get past this either or that we're going to, we just have to we just have to address the short-term issues now and we'll do the long-term later. Well, we have to do the long-term now as well. It's And, and that's the challenge and, and the vehicle to do that is through a GPS, which we would argue uh, um, forces government and all of those other agencies to say explicitly, 
yes, we're tackling the short term, but we're also tackling the long term. And dare I say, let the business our community and, and our other communities to confront government and say, yeah, OK, let's do migration, but let's also convince us how we're going to make sure in 10 years' time we're not confronted with the same issue yet again. Uh, and, and I think that's the challenge. Let's have some transparency. Let's have some robust debates about this. Yes, I'm fully aware that we need nurses here and now, but I'm also aware that if we go down the short-term route, dare I say, in 10 years' time, we'll be continually arguing about, let's bring in more nurses. And and that's the challenge that we've got to be. Yes, migrant, you know, Migrant, migrant nurses will always be part of the jigsaw puzzle, but let's not continue to be in the situation where we're what seems to be a perennial crisis about our workforce, and whether it be nurses or whether it be construction workers, let's be a little bit more, dare I say, let's be a little bit more strategic and long-sighted about this. Because one of that... Um one of the problems with that very short-term, intense, crisis-driven approach is that managers and investors, owners of companies and organisations, are trying to fight the fire. And often the easiest way to fight the fire is just to employ another person. You don't change your systems, you don't invest in new technology, you don't invest in training, you don't invest in a different structure for your business. It might be a merged larger company. It may be connected to the rest of the world as part of a larger company. Uh, how, how does this reflexive reach for the migrant worker, how does that affect how businesses um, can improve their productivity over the long run? Because of course, one way to improve your productivity is to invest in some technology or systems or training so you can produce the same output with fewer people. Well, it's the incentives in the system that we've got to rebalance, for want of a better word, towards those longer-term things. Um, long-term challenges and or long-term objectives in terms of lifting our productivity, encourage the short-term behaviour, yeah, encourage businesses to join the queue and be the loudest voice to get the you know the lobbying behaviour to get yourself on that skill shortage list or whatever shortage list it happens to be. And it doesn't encourage the the longer term behaviour and look at well does my business model actually sustainable for the long term bearing in mind this this global war for talent is not going to go away very quickly it's not it's not a six month thing sorry we will be lucky if it's a six year thing it's much longer than that and so we want the incentives to encourage businesses to look seriously about at their business model and look at what other options are out there rather than the I suppose the the lobbying behaviour that the current incentives um, encourage, and 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 I, I suppose that GPS mechanism or vehicle is one way to encourage a much longer term behaviour. Would say, okay, we've got the incentives. The GPS says we're going to allow X numbers in over the next few years. But by the way, the GPS also says that. Um, there's a obligation on industry associations, sector groups, and indeed our big businesses to make the commitment for investment in our workforce development, investment in new ways of doing things, investment in infrastructure, all of those things go together. And so that sets a different incentive framework if businesses rely or 
are aware that actually this, and I hate to use the tap, but this um, source of migrants is there, but it's not always going to be there. And actually, by the way, there may be different ways of doing things. Let's just check those out and let's see what might, may, might or might not work. Yeah, because there's an underlying fear, I suppose, that a lot of people have that New Zealand's a lovely place to live in. It's been relatively stable and healthy over the last few years when the rest of the world has not been. And um, we've got this publicly funded healthcare system, publicly funded education system, or most of it. You know, we've got a lot of good things going for us. And uh, we do have relatively low wages and relatively high housing costs. But if you're happy to live in a, a, a not so fantastic house, and you're not too worried about putting aside lots of savings, um, and you really don't like tasty cheese. (laughs) (laughs) New Zealand looks pretty good. And of course, there's hundreds of millions of people who are acquiring skills in secondary education in the likes of China and India and the Philippines and increasingly in Africa and the rest of Asia, who would flee, flee, I suppose you could say, from uh, disruptive and dysfunctional places to New Zealand. And there's only five million of us and you know a couple of hundred million people on the, on the go. If we were to open things up completely, um, there would really be a very big queue from the airport into town. Well, that's one way of looking at things and there may be a queue. Um, I don't want to be too pessimistic about it, but there are a lot of other attractive places in the world as well. Um, and so, you know, this idea that we're sort of top of the queue is something that we may need to think carefully about. But taking on board you know, your scenario, yes, we are an attractive place. And yes, there are arguably a lot of people out there in the world that with lots of pressures, whether it's geopolitics, whether it's climate change, all of those sorts of things, looking for somewhere else to go. And and maybe New Zealand is that attractive place. I think that just reinforces for New Zealand, actually, we need to think carefully about, I hate to again use the word, strategically, where do we want to position ourselves in that world? Do we want to be seen as um, attracting everybody, or do we you know, do we actually want to be picky and choosy? Uh, and perhaps um, let's be, oh, arguably, let's be picky and choosy in a way that's going to benefit us as well as the migrants who want to come here. And we want to, yes, we want to attract migrants that come here, but we want to attract the migrants who are going to come here dare I say, for the right reasons, for the reasons that they want to contribute to us, they want to contribute with us to build, to not only safeguard what we've got here in Aotearoa, but to build even better. Um, And, and, you know, in the words, you know, deliver good well-being outcomes, not just for the current generation, but for future generations and, and, and further. And, and, and if that sounds like Nirvana, well, you can call me naive if you like, but we do need to be selective uh, and uh, I don't think we should be apologetic about it. I would like us to be selective, 
transparently, after a good conversation with all of with all in New Zealand about, you know, why migrants, what sort of migrants, what are the conditions and criteria, uh, what are the obligations we want to put on migrants, what are the obligations that we have when we invite migrants into New Zealand, and so it's a two-way relationship. Let's be transparent about that. One of the recommendations you came out with was to say the current rule which connects a worker to their employer in their temporary work visa should be dropped because it opens up that relationship to um, abuse. It puts a lot of power in the hands of the employer. And also, um, you know, in an economy where things are changing, it might be more efficient for someone to move to another job and maybe get a better wage. Absolutely. Tell us a bit more about that recommendation. Well, it, to me, it, it, it's quite fundamental. It, it's simple from the productivity perspective. Uh, we want labour, we want people to be to be able to move to jobs where they are more productive. And, and if an employer was willing to bid that person away, then so be it. And if the employer would argue, well, I spent a lot of dollars bringing this migrant in, well, that's fine. But if you're looking after them, if you're paying them a good wage, if you're uh, treating them well, then uh, you should be able to keep them. I mean, that, that's part of the um, perspective and I suppose from the other angle, you know, tying a person to one employer has all the hallmarks of the word, you know, I don't want to use the word slavery in this context, but it's where do you draw the line? And and so we, you know, we tempered our uh, recommendation in the sense that the migrants in that temporary visa category should be able to go to another accredited employer. Um, And so the accredited employer Make, has the obligation and has passed the tests in terms of criteria, in terms of um, paying uh, appropriate wages, putting in appropriate pastoral care uh, around the person. So it is that two-way relationship rather than the one-way relationship. We do need to recognise that migrants in that employer-employee relationship are at a significantly lower level in terms of that balance of power. So if we were to have this debate about what is the right level of migration, when we would turn it on, when we would turn it off, uh, what is the right level of infrastructure to go with that particular level of migration, what sort of um, things would, what sort of policies would politicians and voters have to think about? Because on the face of it, there is a short-term risk that if we are going into an election with a slowing economy, with shortages of labour, with rising wages and inflation is the main concern, someone might say, ah, I know how to solve this problem. All of these New Zealanders who are going overseas on OEs, we'll replace them with uh, migrants coming in and we get plenty of bang for our buck. We get A, plenty of new population, which will help stop the fall in house prices and maybe get them going up again. Uh, We get you know, some pressure off wages, maybe, although your report points out that it's still a deb- there's a debate uh, around whether or not it actually pushes wages down. And, you know, all of these places often producing essential services, hospitals, schools, will be able to do what they desperately need to do again. We'll have those surgeries. We'll, those kids will get taught. And um, the temptation is to go, yeah, do it, do it. But, of course, we still haven't solved the infrastructure deficit problem. As the Infrastructure Commission pointed out, um, we have to fill a hole going back 30 years of $100 billion, and then there's a hole going forward 30 years of another $100 billion. 
So what sort of, you know, hard decisions, deals might voters and politicians have to make around, okay, if we are going to turn on the tap to solve this immediate short-term problem, well, we're also going to have to commit to X percent of GDP and infrastructure investment and making sure that, you know, within a few years we've filled the hole and we've got plans to fill the next hole. I think the, the key thing is we've got to get out of the short-term mindset. Uh, migration is not an isolated policy uh, and it really should not be used to solve short-term um, challenges or short-term issues. Uh, if, we, if we are to do that, then we've got to be clear and open-eyed about the the risks of such a short-term proposal and the costs involved in that. Uh, the, the infrastructure and the investment that needs to be done actually doesn't need to be done for migrants. It needs to be done for all of us. Uh, and, I, and I'll call, you know, the, um, the Infrastructure Commission made a, a critical recommendation about a national population plan. And we're quite happy to dovetail into that in the context of our government policy statement. Those two go together hand in hand, in our opinion. Um, the National Policy Plan, in, in the Infrastructure Commission's words, is very much helpful in terms of guiding uh, what is our population likely to be over the next 30 to 50 years. And let's start thinking about, okay, that's our population. I won't call it a target, but that's our scenario. Then what's the infrastructure and the investment in our physical stuff that we have to do that's consistent with that? And not to mention some other agency will be looking at the health services that are required and the education services, and then hopefully also the workforce development that is required beside that. And in amongst all of that will be a, a an immigration level and uh, composition that will be consistent with that population plan, will be consistent with our infrastructure. They all dovetail together. The short-term considerations really, really um, concerned about uh, people who think that immigration could be used for, for short-term economic management or sh management of the, the, the economic cycle over the short-term. That, to me, uh, can be done, but it's a high-risk scenario. And if we're going to go that way, let's make sure it's consistent with the, those long-term considerations as well. Because the, the cynic in me, and I'm sort of a professional <laughs> no, cynic. No, you're not a cynic. <laughs> <laughs> Why would we says, go there? Since we've built this sort of amazing economic model over the last 10, 20, maybe even 30 years, but particularly the last 10 to 20 years when we've had high migration, in which... We've had high population growth, high nominal GDP growth, which is also really handy for getting your budget back in surplus in a hurry when you need to. We've got, because of all the pressure on the underlying infrastructure, because we didn't invest in the infrastructure, and we did that uh, because we wanted to be in surplus, we didn't want to have high public debt, and we also wanted to have relatively low tax rates. The end result of that was this perfect system for anyone owning a house. You had tax-free, leveraged capital gains, which rose very fast because you had population growth coming in. Um, you could argue um, continued, if not downward pressure, then a, a, maybe some restriction on wage growth, which um, helped keep interest rates low. And of course, low interest rates increases your asset prices. And it was this perfect solution. And it all works fine until the migration stops and inflation goes up and interest rates go up and I do wonder whether you can actually fundamentally change the incentives driving this sort of behavior 
unless you change the tax system underneath all of these investment decisions. Because, for example, if I'm in a business and I've just made some spare cash, a bit of profit, I have a choice. Do I put it back into the business, maybe invest in a new computer system or uh, do a deal to buy a, a rival and become more efficient or maybe I choose to do some R&D for some great new technology or I could put that same $500,000 into three rental properties, gear it up, uh, much more sure returns, much less volatile, the bank will lend me the money and the leveraged return on my equity, which is tax-free, is fantastic. Whereas if I put my money into this R&D thing and this business of mine, it's probably quite volatile, it's quite risky, I will have to pay tax on, corp on corporate um, profits, uh, and it's quite hard to get around that. The IRD is always keen to, to, to make me pay that. And whereas I, if I just put it into another couple of brick and tile rentals, I'll make a lot more money. Can you really change the incentives around migration and solve some of these productivity issues if we don't address that core issue of the imbalance in the way our tax system treats not just income but wealth? You've covered a lot there. Um, take your pick on which I'll one. I'll take you my pick on, on some of those. Um, I, I think the the scenario you paint of uh, and it worked all well until we until the the migrants didn't come in. I would actually contest, yes, it worked well, but who for? It didn't work well for all of us, and I think that's the critical thing. We got some headline numbers look good, that, and let's not forget those headline numbers, whether they be GDP per, um, GDP growth or whether it be um, house prices, they were averages. Let's not forget averages, as I said before, hide a lot. It's the distribution of those impact across the various communities we've got to look at. And so I would argue, yes, it might have worked well in the past, but it definitely was not sustainable um, given the uh, the level and given the distribution of the gains that we had. And so arguably you would say, um, it wasn't sustainable if we carried down that route where we had a whole lot more dislocation and a whole lot more, shall we say, upheaval. Um, it wasn't sustainable from an economic perspective because we were not getting productivity growth. It was it was GDP growth. It was economic growth. It was output growth, but it was not productivity growth. So it was getting more and more by us doing more and working harder more and more, whereas productivity is actually us doing better stuff and more clever stuff while devoting the same number of hours. And I think that's the difference that we've got. You ask about whether we need to change the incentives. Yes. Um, and tax policy, expenditure policy, regulatory policies, all of those things need to go in that mix if we're serious about um, shifting the dial on both productivity and, dare I say, well-being for New Zealand and not just the average well-being across all of those. So underneath all of that, I would push back and argue what's the objective? Let's start thinking about what the objective is in the long term. Are we serious about intergeneration well-being? Are we serious about a kaitiaki kaupapa? Or are we just interested in the gains next week or the, the dividend payout in six months' time? And I think that's a conversation 
that we need to be serious about that goes with the infrastructure commission talking about long-lived infrastructure you know we're not going to do the investment now if we're you know in, in serious infrastructure if all we're interested in return tomorrow we've got to be thinking about the returns to the the voices that are not being heard and those voices that are not at the table as the next generation and beyond so your scenario it might have worked for some but it's definitely not sustainable for the the world that we're venturing into over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Ganesh Nana, uh, the uh, chair of the Productivity Commission. Ganesh, thank you very much. Thank Enjoyed you. the chat. In particular, the chat about thinking fast and thinking slow. Thank you. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.